Section 13 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. Operatic Development in Italy and France, Part 2. Gaetano Donizetti, 1798-1848, was a pupil of Simon Mayer in his native city of Bergamo, and later of Rossini's master, Mattei, of Bologna. His first dramatic attempt was an opera seria, Enrico Conte di Borgogna, given successfully in Venice in 1818. Obtaining his discharge from the army, in which he had enlisted in consequence of a quarrel with his father, he devoted himself entirely to operatic composition, writing in all 65 operas. He composed with incredible rapidity and is said to have orchestrated an entire opera in 30 hours. But, succumbing to brain trouble brought on by the strain of overwork, he died when barely 50 years of age. He added three unaffectedly tuneful and vivacious operas to the opera buffa repertory, La Fille du Régiment, Lisière d'Amore, and Don Pasquale. In these he is undoubtedly at his best, for he discards the affectations he cultivated in his serious work to satisfy the prevailing taste of his day, and gives free rein to his imagination and his power of humorous characterization. La Fille du Régiment made the rounds of the German and Italian opera houses before the Parisians were willing to reconsider their verdict after its first unsuccessful production at the Opera Comique in 1840. It presents a tale of love which does not run smooth, but which terminates happily when a high-born mother at length allows her daughter to marry a Napoleonic officer, her inferior in birth. Though the music is slight, it is free from pretense and unaffectedly gay. Like Rossini, Donizetti settled in France after his reputation was established and suited his style to the taste of his adopted country. In a minor degree, the differences between Rossini's Tell and his Semiramide are the same as those between Donizetti's Fille du Régiment and one of his Italian operas. But their parallel ends. The daughter of the regiment shows, however, that Donizetti's lighter operas have stood the test of time better than his more serious ones. Elisia d'Amore, Milan, 1832, also contains some spontaneous and gracefully fresh and captivating music. The plot is childish, but musically the score ranks with that of Don Pasquale, Paris, 1843, the plot of which turns on a trick played by two young lovers upon the uncle and guardian of one of them. This brilliant trifle made a tremendous success, and in it Donizetti's gay vivacity reached its climax. It was the last of his notable contributions to the opera buffa of the Rossinian school. Written for the Théâtre des Italiens and sung for the first time by Grisi, Mario, Tamburini and La Blanche, its success was in striking contrast to the failure of Don Sebastien, a large, serious opera produced soon afterward. 
The vogue of Donizetti's serious operas has practically passed away. To modern ears, despite much tender melody and occasional dramatic expressiveness, they sound stilted and lacking in vitality. Lucia di Lammermoor, founded on Scott's tragic romance The Bride of Lammermoor, Naples, 1835, immensely popular in the composer's day, is still given as a prima donna's opera for the virtuoso display of some favourite artist. The fine sextet enjoys undiminished popularity in its original form, as well as in instrumental arrangements, but in general the composer's subservience to the false standard of public taste detracts from the music. An instance is the mad scene, ridiculous from the dramatic standpoint, with its smooth and polished melody, ending in a virtuoso fioritura cadenza for voice and flute. The same criticism applies to the tuneful Lucrezia Borgia, Milan, 1833, which in spite of charming melodies and occasionally effective concerted numbers, is orchestrated in a thin and childish manner. Anna Bolena, Milan, 1830, written for Pasta and Rubini, after the good old Italian fashion of adapting roles to singers, and Marino Faliero, 1835, were both written in rivalry with Bellini, and the failure of the last-named opera was responsible for the supreme effort which produced Lucia. More important is Linda di Chamonix, which aroused such enthusiasm when first performed in Vienna in 1842, that the emperor conferred the title of court composer on its composer. But La Favorita, with its repulsive plot, which shares with Lucia the honour of being the best of Donizetti's serious operas, is superior to Linda in the care with which it has been written and in the dramatic power of the ensemble numbers. Spirito Gentile, the delightful romance in the last act, is perhaps the best-known aria in the score. In Lucia and La Favorita, Donizetti's melodic inspiration, his sole claim to the favour of posterity, finds its freest and most spontaneous development. While Donizetti had an occasional sense of dramatic effect, his contemporary, Vincenzo Bellini, 1802-1835, the son of an organist of Catania, showed a genius which, if wanting in wit and vivacity, had much melancholy sweetness and a certain elegiac solemnity of expression. He had studied the works of both the German and Italian composers, in particular those of Pergolesi, and like Donizetti, he fell a victim to the strain of persistent overwork. Among his ten operas, he did not attempt the buffer style, three stand out prominently. La Sonambula, Milan, 1831, Norma, Milan, 1831, and I Puritani, Paris, 1835. La Sonambula, in which the singer Pasta created the title role, is an admirable example of Bellini in his most tender and idyllic mood. A graceful melodiousness fills the score, and the closing scene attains genuine sincerity and pathos. Norma, Milan, 1831, set to a strong and moving libretto by the poet Felice Romani, is a tragedy of Druidic Britain, and in it the composer may be considered to have reached his highest level. At a time like the present, when the art of singing is not cultivated to the pitch of perfection that was the standard in the composer's own period, 
A modern rendering of Norma, for instance, is apt to lose in dramatic intensity, since Bellini and the other followers of Rossini were content to provide a rich, broad flow of cantilena melody, leaving it to the singers to infuse in it dramatic force and meaning, something which Tamburini, Rubini, and other great Italian singers were well able to do. Norma surpasses Puritani in the real beauty and force of its libretto, and gains thereby in musical consistency. But the latter opera, which shows French influences to some extent, cannot be excelled as regards the tender pathos and sweet sincerity of its melodies, which, like those in the composer's other works, depend on bel canto for their effect. Triumphantly successful at the Théâtre des Italiens in Paris, 1834, this last of Bellini's works may well have been that of which Wagner wrote, I shall never forget the impression made upon me by an opera of Bellini at a period when I was completely exhausted with the everlasting abstract complication used in our orchestras, when a simple and noble melody was revealed to me anew. In a manner, Bellini may be considered a link between the exuberant force and consummate savoir-faire of Rossini's French period and the more earnest earlier efforts of Verdi. Though Donizetti and Bellini are the leading figures in the group of composers identified with Rossini's operatic reforms, a few other names call for mention here. Saverio Mercadante, who composed both opera seria and opera buffa, a gifted but careless writer whose best-known work is the tragic opera Il Giuramento, Milan, 1837. Giovanni Pacini, whose Suffo, a direct imitation of Rossini, was most successful. And Niccolo Vaccai, better known for his vocal exercises, still in general use, than for his once popular opera Giulietta e Romeo, Milan, 1825. Meyerbeer's seven Italian operas, Romilda e Constanza, Semiramida e Riconosciuta, Eduardo e Cristina, Emma di Resburgo, Margarita di Anjou, Lesul di Granata, and Il Crociato in Egitto, which were due directly to the admiration he had conceived for Rossini in 1815, and of which he afterward repented, also properly belong to this enumeration. Meanwhile, the reform in Italian opera associated with Rossini made itself felt in Germany, where, in opera, the Italian style was still supreme, by way of one of the most remarkable figures in the history of music. Gassaro Spontini, 1774-1851, the son of a cobbler of Ancona, had studied composition at the Conservatorio dei Torricchi in Naples. By 1799, he had written and produced eight operas. Appointed court composer to King Ferdinand of Naples the same year, he was compelled to leave that city in 1800 in consequence of the discovery of an intrigue he had been carrying on with a princess of the court. Two comic operas, Julie and La Petite Maison, Paris 1804, having been hissed, he determined to drop the buffa style completely. The production of Milton, one act, in 1804, was his first gauge of adherence to the higher ideals he henceforth made his own. 
He was influenced materially by an earnest study of Gluck and Mozart, and through his friendship with the dramatic poet Etienne Jouy. La Vestale, 1807, his first great success, was the result of three years of effort, and upon its performance at the Académie d'Imperiale, through the influence of the Empress Josephine, a public triumph, it won the prize offered by Napoleon for the best dramatic work. In La Vestale, one of the finest works of its class, Spontini superseded the palando of Italian opera with accompanied recitative, increased the strength of his orchestra, contemporary criticism accused him of overloading his scores with orchestration, and employed large choruses with telling effect. La Vestale glorified the pseudo-classicism of the French directory. Ferdinando Cortes, which duplicated the success of that opera two years later, represents an attempt on the part of Napoleon to ingratiate himself with the Spanish nation he designed to conquer. The same year the composer married the daughter of Erard, the celebrated piano-maker, and in 1810 he became director of the Italian opera. In this capacity, he paid tribute to the German influences which had moulded his artistic views by giving the first Parisian performance of Mozart's Don Giovanni and organising concerts at which music by Haydn and other German composers was heard. Court composer to Louis XVIII in 1814, he was for five years mainly occupied with the writing of Olympie, set to a clumsy and undramatic libretto which he himself considered his masterwork, though its production in 1819 was a failure. Five months after this disappointment, in response to an invitation of Frederick William III of Prussia, he settled in Berlin, becoming director of the Royal Opera, with an excellent salary and plenty of leisure time. In spite of difficulties with the intendant, Count Brühl, he accomplished much. Divestalin, Fernando Cortes and Olympie, prepared with inconceivable effort, were produced with great success in 1821. But in the same year, Weber's Freischutz, full of romantic fervour and directly appealing to the heart of the German nation, turned public a favour away from Spontini. In Normahal, 1822, the libretto founded on Moore's Lala Rook, and Alcidor, 1825, Spontini evidently chose subjects of a more fanciful type in order to compete with Weber. His librettos were poor, however, and the purely romantic was unsuited to his mode of thought. In Agnes von Hohenstaufen, planned on a grander scale than any of his previous scores, he reverted again to his former style. It is beyond all doubt Spontini's greatest work. In grandeur of style and imaginative breadth, it excels both La Vestale and Ferdinando Cortes. So thoroughgoing were Spontini's revisions that when it was again given in Berlin in 1837, many who had heard it when first performed did not recognise it. Spontini's suspicious and despotic nature, which made him almost impossible to get along with, led to his dismissal, though with titles and salary, in 1841. Thereafter, he lived much in retirement and died in 1851. His music belonged essentially to the epic period of the First French Empire. The wearied nations, after the fall of Napoleon, craved sensuous beauty of sound 
lullabies, arias, cavatinas, tenderness and wit, rather than stateliness and grandeur. Thus, the political conditions of the time favoured Rossini's success, and, in a measure, at Spontini's expense. Spontini was the direct precursor of Meyerbeer, who was to develop the historical opera to which the former had given distinction, with its large lines and stateliness of detail, its broadly human and heroic appeal, into the more melodramatic and violently contrasted type generally known as French Grand Opera. Giacomo Meyerbeer, 1791-1863, first known as Jacob Meyerbeer, the son of the wealthy Jewish banker Beer of Berlin, was an infant prodigy, for, when but nine years old, he was accounted the best pianist in Berlin. The first teacher to exert a decided influence on him was Abbe Vogler, organist and theoretician of Darmstadt, to whom he went in 1810, living in his home, and, with Karl Maria von Weber, taking daily lessons in counterpoint, fugue, and organ playing. Appointed composer to the court by the Grand Duke two years later, his first opera, Jephthah's Bow, failed at Darmstadt, 1811, and his second, Alimelech, at Vienna in 1814. Though cruelly discouraged, he took Salieri's advice and, persevering, went to Italy to study vocalization and form a new style. In Venice, Rossini's influence affected him so powerfully that, giving up all idea of developing a style of his own, he produced the seven Italian operas already mentioned with brilliant and unlooked-for success, which, however, did not impress his former fellow-student Weber, who deplored them as treasonable to the ideals of German art. Meyerbeer himself, before long, regretted his defection. In fact, the last of the operas of this Italian period, Il Crociato in Egitto, Venice 1824, is no longer so evidently after the manner of Rossini. It was given all over Italy, in London, Paris, St. Petersburg, and even at Rio de Janeiro. Weber considered it a sign that the composer would soon abandon the Italian style and return to a higher ideal. The success of Il Crociato gave Meyerbeer an excellent opportunity of visiting Paris, in consequence of Rossini's staging it at the Italiens in 1826, where it achieved a triumph. The grief into which the death of his father and of his two children plunged him interrupted for some time his activity in the operatic field. He returned to Germany and until 1830 wrote nothing for public performance, but composed a number of psalms, motets, cantatas, and songs of an austerely sentimental character, among them his well-known The Monk. This was his second, or German, period. It is probable that in 1830 he planned his first distinctively French opera, Robert le Diable, for which the clever librettist Eugène Scribe wrote the book. The first performance of that work, typically a grand romantic opera, on November the 22nd, 1831, aroused unbounded enthusiasm. Yet certain contemporary critics called it the acme of insane fiction and spoke of it as 
the apotheosis of blasphemy, indecency and absurdity. Schumann and Mendelssohn disapproved of it. The latter accused its music of being cold and heartless, and Spontini, because of professional jealousy, condemned it. Liszt and Berlioz, on the other hand, were full of admiration. There is no doubt that text and music had united to create a tremendous impression. The libretto, in spite of faults, was theatrically effective. The music was pregnant, melodious, sensuously pleasing, and rendered dramatic by reason of shrill, contrasting orchestral colouring. So striking was the impression it made at the time, though from our present-day standpoint it is decidedly vieux-jeux, that its faults passed almost unobserved. From the standpoint of the ideal, the work is lacking in many respects. First intended for the opera comique, its remodelling by Scrib and Meyerbeer himself had built up a kind of romantic and symbolic vision around the original comedy. The Robert, loyal, proud and loving, and Isabella, tender and kind, of the original were the same, but the characters of Bertram and Alice had been elevated, respectively, to the dignity of angels of evil and of good, struggling to obtain possession of Robert's soul, thus exalting the entire work. The change had given the score a mixed character, somewhat between drama and comedy, making it a romantic opera in the manner of Euryanthe or Oberon. Still, excess of variety in effects, the occasional lack of melodic distinction and want of character do not affect its forceful expression and dramatic boldness. The influence of Rossini and of Aubert, whose Muet di Portici had been given three years before, of Gluck and Weber was apparent in Robert le Diable, yet as a score it was different, and in some respects absolutely novel. If Marbier had less creative spontaneity and freshness than Rossini, and less ease than Aubert, in breadth of musical education he surpassed them both. In a measure, both Spontini and Rossini may be excused if they thought that Meyerbeer, in developing their art tendencies, transformed and distorted them. Spontini, no doubt, looked on him as a huckster who bartered away the sacred mysteries of creative art for the sake of cheap applause. The straightforward Rossini probably thought him a hypocrite. And therein they both wronged him. An eclectic, an art lover rather than an artist, Meyerbeer revelled in the luxury of using every style and attempting every novelty in order to prove himself master of whatever he undertook but he was undeniably honest in all that he did, though he lacked that spontaneity which belongs to the artist alone. And, in Les Huguenots, his next work, first performed in 1836, five years after Robert, he composed an opera which in gorgeous colour, human interest, consistent dramatic treatment, and accentuation of individual types, in force and breadth generally, marked a decided advance on its predecessor. Les Huguenots was not a historical opera in the sense of Tell. In Tell, Rossini showed himself as an Italian and a patriot. The Habsburgs of his hero's day were the same who, at the time he wrote, oppressed his countrymen. Gessler stood for the imperial governor of Lombardy, his guards for Austrian soldiers. The liberty-loving Swiss he identified with the Lombards and Venetians 
whose liberties were attacked. But, though the subject of Meyerbeer's opera is an episode of the Massacre of St. Bartholomew, that episode is merely used as a sinister background, against which his warm and living characters move and tell their story. Les Huguenots may be considered Meyerbeer's most finished and representative score. Not a single element of colour and contrast has escaped him. In only two respects did its interest fall short of that awakened by its predecessor. So successful had the composer been in his treatment of the supernatural in Robert that the omission of that element now was regretted, and, more important, the fifth act proved to be an anticlimax. The opera, when given now, usually ends at the fourth act, when Raoul, leaping from the window to his death, leaves Valentine fainting. In psychological truth, Les Huguenots is undoubtedly superior to Robert. There is a double interest, that of knowing how the mutual love of Valentine, the Catholic, and Raoul, the Protestant, will turn out, and that of the drama in general, against which, and not out of which, the fate of the Huguenots is developed. In the third act especially, the opera develops a breadth and eloquence maintained to the end. The varied shadings of this picture of Paris, its ensembles, contrasted yet never confounded, constitute, in Berlioz's words, a magnificent musical tissue. Les Huguenots, like Robert, made the tour of the world. And, as Tell was prohibited in Austria, for political reasons, so Meyerbeer's opera was forbidden in strictly Catholic lands. This did not prevent its performance under such titles as the Gulfs or the Ghibellines at Pisa. A letter to Meyerbeer shows that he refused an arrangement of the libretto entitled The Swedes Before Prague. After Les Huguenots had been produced, Meyerbeer spent a number of years in the preparation of his next works, L'Africain and Les Prophètes. Scribe had supplied the librettos for both these works, and both underwent countless revisions and changes at Meyerbeer's hands. The story of L'Africain was more than once entirely rewritten. In the meantime, the composer had accepted, after Spontini's withdrawal, the appointment of Kapellmeister to the King of Prussia, and spent some years in Berlin. Here he composed psalms, sacred cantatas, a secular choral work with living pictures, Una Festa nella Corte di Ferrara, the first of his four torchlight marches for the wedding of Prince Max of Bavaria with Princess Mary of Prussia, and a cantata for soli, chorus and brasses, set to a poem of King Louis I of Bavaria. In 1843 he produced Das Feldlager in Schlesein, the camp in Silesia, and German opera based on anecdotes of Frederick the Great, the national hero of Prussia, which, coldly received at first, was at once successful when the brilliant Swedish soprano Jenny Lind made her first appearance in Prussia in it as Vielka, the heroine. Three years later he composed the incidental music for Struensee, a drama written by his brother Michael. The overture is still considered an example of his orchestration at his best. His chief care, however, from 1843 to 1847, was bestowed on worthily presenting the works of others at the Berlin Opera. Gluck's Armida and Iphigenia in Tauris, Mozart's Don Giovanni, Zauberflöte, 
Beethoven's Fidelio, Weber's Freischutz and Urianthi, and Spohr's Faust, the last a tribute of appreciation. He even procured the acceptance of Wagner's Der Fliegende Holländer and Rienzi, that brilliant, showy, and effective exercise in the grand opera manner, whose first performance he directed in 1847. In 1849, Meyerbeer produced Les Prophètes in Paris, after many months of rehearsal. The score shows greater elevation and grandeur than that of Les Huguenots, but it is marred by contradictions and inequalities of style. In spite of its success and many undeniably beautiful sections, it betrays a falling off of the composer's creative power and it suffers from overemphasis. His two successful efforts to compete with the composers of French opera comique on their own ground, L'Etoile du Nord and Les Pardons de Plumel, Dinora, were heard in Paris in 1854 and 1859, respectively. L'Etoile du Nord was practically das Feldlager in Schlesien, worked over and given a Russian instead of a Prussian background. Its success was troubled by the last illness and death of the composer's mother, to whom he was passionately attached. A number of shorter vocal and instrumental compositions were written during the five years that elapsed between its premiere and that of his second comic opera. This, Le Pardon de Plumel, was set to a libretto by Carré and Barbier. It is a charming pastoral work, easy, graceful and picturesque. Its music throughout is tuneful and bright, but its inane libretto has much to do with the neglect into which it has fallen. From 1859 to 1864, beside the shorter compositions alluded to, Meyerbeer worked on various unfinished scores, a Judith, Blas de Bury's Jeunesse de Goethe, and others. He left a quantity of unfinished manuscripts of all kinds at his death, but mainly during this period he was busy with the score of L'Africain, his last great opera. When at length, after years of hesitation, he had decided to have it performed, and it was in active preparation at the opera. He was seized with a sudden illness and died, May the 2nd, 1864. He had not been spared to witness the first performance of this which he loved above all his other operas, and on which he lavished untold pains. It was produced, however, with regard to his wishes, April the 28th, 1865, and was a tremendous success. Scribe's libretto contains many poetic scenes and effective situations and gave the composer every opportunity to manifest his genius. It is the most consistent of his works. In it he displays remarkable skill in delineation of characters and situations. His music, in the scenes that occur in India, is rich in glowing oriental colour. Nowhere has he made a finer use of the hues of the orchestral palette. And in the fifth act, which crowns the entire work, he exalts to the highest emotional pitch the noble and touching character of his heroine, Selika, who sacrifices her love for Vasco da Gama that the latter may be happy with the woman he loves. In dignity and serenity, the melodies of L'Africain surpass those of the composer's other operas. Its music, though in general less popular than that of Les Huguenots, is of a finer calibre, and the ceaseless striving after effect, so apparent in much of his other work, 
is absent in this. The worth of Meyerbeer's talent has long been realised, despite the fact that Wagner, urged by personal reasons, has ungratefully called him a miserable music-maker and a Jewish banker to whom it occurred to compose operas. Granting that his qualities were those of the master artisan rather than the master artist, admitting his weakness for voluptuous ballets, for passion torn to tatters, ecclesiastical display and violent death, for violent contrast rather than subtle characterization, he still lives in his influence, which may be said to have founded the melodramatic school of opera now so popular, of which Cavalleria Rusticana is perhaps the most striking example. As long as intensity of passion and power of dramatic treatment are regarded as fitting in dramatic music, his name will live. Zola's eulogy, put in the mouth of one of the characters in his Louvre, rings true. Meyerbeer, a shrewd fellow who profited by everything, bringing, after Weber, the symphony into opera, giving dramatic expression to the unconscious formula of Rossini. Oh, what superb evocations! feudal pomp, military mysticism, the thrill of fantastic legend, the cries of passion traversing history. And what skill the personality of the instruments, dramatic recitative symphonically accompanied by the orchestra, the typical phrase upon which an entire work is built. An ingenious fellow, a most ingenious fellow. The French grand opera of Rossini and Meyerbeer was the musical expression of dramatic, passionate sentiments, affording scope to every excellence of vocal and orchestral technique, and even to every device of stage setting. It is not strange that it appealed to contemporary composers. Even Aubert, Herold, Alevi and Adam, though more generally identified with the opera comique, attempted grand opera with varying success. Aubert, in his La Muette di Portici, Massaniello, given in 1828, meets Spontini, Rossini and Meyerbeer on their own ground with a historical drama of considerable beauty and power. Its portrayal of revolutionary sentiment was so convincing that its first performance in Brussels, 1830, precipitated the revolution which ended in the separation of Holland and Belgium. Erold, united with Aubert's elegance and polish, greater depth of feeling. Zampa, 1831, a grand opera on a fanciful subject. And Le Pré au Clerc, 1832, are his best serious operas. His early death cut short the development of his unusual dramatic gift. Alevi even went so far as to distort his natural style in the effort to emulate Meyerbeer. Of his grand operas, La Juive, 1835, La Reine de Chypre, 1841, Charles VI, 1834, La Tempesta, 1850, only the first, a work of gloomy sublimity, with fine melodies and much good instrumentation, may be called a masterpiece. Adam's few attempts at grand opera were entirely unsuccessful, though his comic operas enjoyed tremendous vogue. But the influence of Rossini and Meyerbeer on grand opera has continued far beyond their own time. The style of La Patrie by Palladil is directly influenced by Meyerbeer. Verdi in his earlier works, Guido, Trovatori, I Lombardi, 
shows traces of his methods. Gounod, in the dispute scene in the fourth act of Romeo et Juliet, likewise reflects Meyerbeer, and Wagner was not above profiting from him, whom he most scornfully and unjustly belittled. In summing up the contributions of Rossini and Meyerbeer to the history of music, it may be said that their operas, and in particular those of the latter, are a continuation and amplification of the heritage of Gluck. Eduard Churet says in his important work, Les Drames Musicales, the secret of the opera of Meyerbeer is the pursuit of effect for effect's sake. Yet it will be remembered that Gluck himself wrote in the preface of his Alceste, I attach no importance to formulas. I have sacrificed all to the effect to be produced. The art of Gluck and the art of Meyerbeer have the same point of departure, and each is expressed in formulas which, while quite distinct and individual, denote the highest dramatic genius. Both Rossini and Meyerbeer increase the value of the orchestra in expressing emotion in all its phases in connection with the drama, and help to open the way for the later development of French grand opera and the innovations of Richard Wagner. Weber and Schubert had both died before Meyerbeer began to play an important part, Succeeding Spontini and Rossini as the dominant figure of the grand opera stage, his real successor was Richard Wagner. But, though Rossini, Meyerbeer and their followers had enriched the technical resources of opera, had broadened the range of topic and plot, yet they had not turned aside the main current of operatic composition very far from its bed. The romantic and dramatic tendencies which they had introduced, however, were to bear fruit more especially in French Romanticism and the development of the evolution of the French opera comique into the drama lyrique. An account of the origin and development of the French opera comique as a purely national form of dramatic musical entertainment has already been given in the chapter dealing with Gluck's operatic reform. Here we will briefly show its development during the period of which he have spoken. François-Adrienne Boildieu may be considered, together with Niccolo Isouard, the last composer of the older type of opera comique, to which his operas Jean de Paris and La Dame Blanche gave a new and lasting distinction. As Pujain says, it is positive that comic opera, as Boildieu understood it, was an artwork delicate in type, with genuine flavour and an essentially varied colour. Bourdieu was especially successful in utilising the rhythmic life of French folk song, and La Dame Blanche has those same qualities of solid merit and real musical invention found in the serious opera comique of Cherubini and Mehul. In fact, it was these three composers who gave the genre a new trend. In Scudo's words, Bourdieu's work is the happy transition from Gretry to Erold, and together with Mehul and Cherubini, the highest musical expression in the comic opera field. After Bourdieu's time, the influence of Rossini became so strong that opera comique began to lose its character as a distinct national operatic form. The influence of Rossini was especially noticeable in the work of the group of opera comique composers including Aubert, Erold, Alevi, Adam, Victor Massé, Maillard, 
who were to prepare the way for the lyric drama of Thomas and Gounod. The contribution of Aubert, Herold and Alevi to the historical or grand opera repertory have already been mentioned in the review of operatic development in Italy and France. Here we will only consider their work as a factor in transforming the French comic opera of Mehul and Boildieu into the more sentimental and fanciful type of which the modern romantic French opera was to be born. One fact which furthered the transition from opera comique to drama lyrique was the frequent absence of the element of farce with the consequent encouragement of a more poetic and romantic musical development. Daniel François Esprit Aubert, 1782-1871, uninterruptedly busy from 1840-1871, to and his name identified with many of the greatest successes of the comic opera stage of his time, has been somewhat unjustly termed a superficial Rossini. Aubert undoubtedly borrowed from Rossini in his musical treatment of the comic, and he had little idea of powerful ensemble effects or of polyphonic writing, but grace, sweetness and brilliancy of instrumentation cannot be denied him. The child of Voltaire and Rossini, from about 1822 on, he wrote operas in conjunction with the librettist Scriber. Fra Diavolo, 1830, shows Aubert at his best in comic opera. His music is gay and tuneful, without dropping into commonplace. The rhythms are brilliant and varied, and the orchestration neat and appropriate. Incidentally, it might be remarked that Aubert had written an opera on a subject which since his time has appealed both to Massenet and Puccini, Manon Lesco, 1856, which in places foreshadows Verdi's ardently dramatic art. In spite of Aubert's personal and professional success, not only was he considered one of the greatest operatic composers of his day, but also he succeeded Gossek in the Académie, 1835, was director of the Conservatory of Music, 1842, and imperial maître de chapelle to Napoleon III, he was essentially modest. With more confidence in himself than Meyerbeer, he was quite as unpretentious as the latter. Though by no means ungrateful to the artists who contributed to the success of his works, he would say, I don't cuddle them and put them in cotton wool like Meyerbeer. It is perfectly logical that he should do so. The Nourites, the Levasseurs, the Via do Garcias, and the Rogers are not picked up at street corners, but bring me the first urchin you meet who has a decent voice and a fair amount of intelligence, and in six months he'll sing the most difficult part I ever wrote, with the exception of that of Massaniello. My operas are a kind of warming pan for great singers. There is something in being a good warming pan. Erol's most distinctive comic operas are Marie and Le Mouliatière, 1848. The last name is a setting of a rather spicy libretto by Paul de Kock, the novelist whose field was that of middle-class Parisian life, of guinguette and cabaret and equivocal adventures, and was highly successful. It seems a far cry from an operetta of this style to the romanticism of the drama lyrique. But if an occasional score harked back as regards vulgarity of subject, to the equivocal popular couplets which the Comtesse du Barry had La Rivée sing for the entertainment 
of the sexagenarian Louis XV at Lucien some 60 years before, it only serves to emphasize by contrast the trend in the direction of a finer expression of sentiment. Alevi's masterpiece in comic opera is Leclerc, 1835, a curiosity of musical literature. It is written for two tenors and two sopranos, without a chorus, and displays in a favorable light the composer's mastery of the most refined effects of instrumentation and vocalization. Wagner, while living in greatly reduced circumstances in Paris, had been glad to arrange a piano score and various quartets for strings of Alivi's Guitarero, 1841. The most famous of Aubert's disciples was Adolphe Charles Adam, 1802-1856. Adam had been one of Bourdieu's favourite pupils and was an adept at copying Aubert's style. Aubert's music gained or lost in value according to the chance that conditioned its composer's inspiration, but it was always spiritual, elegant and ingenious, hiding real science and dignity beneath the mask of frivolity. Adam, on the other hand, was an excellent imitator, but his music was not original. He wrote more than fifty light, exceedingly tuneful and catchy light operas, of which Les Chalets, 1834, Les Postillons de Langemur, 1836, which had a tremendous vogue throughout Europe, Les Brasseurs du Preston, 1838, Le Roi d'Evteau, 1842, and Cagliostro, 1844, are the best known. Grissard, another disciple of Aubert, furnishes another example of graceful facility in writing, combined with a lack of originality. Mayars, 1817 to 1871, Les Dragons de Valère, which duplicated its Parisian successes in Germany under the title of Das Glockchen des Eremiten, was the most popular of the six operas he wrote. Victor Massé, 1822 to 1884, is known chiefly by Galathée, 1852, Les Noches de Jeannette, 1853, and Paul et Virginet, 1876. End of section 13